This is real food, handmade by people who love what they do. This is cheese by hand. Today on Cheese by Hand, we bring you Goat Lady Dairy. Goat Lady Dairy was founded by Ginny Tate in Climax, North Carolina. It is now run by Ginny, her brother Steve, and his wife Lee. When Ginny founded the farm, she was looking for land to have a goat or two, and she found an old tobacco plantation, so she started to rebuild it. Of course, the locals thought she was crazy. She was a nurse from the city, rebuilding rather than tearing down, harboring goats, and as word got around, townspeople started to refer to her simply as the goat lady. When we started, there was nothing. Uh, when my sister first started going around talking to people at the Cooperative Extension, at the university, at all the logical places you would go, almost to a person, they literally laughed her out of their office, uh, saying, you got to be crazy, dairies are going out of business every day, you'll go broke, it won't work, whoever heard of selling goat cheese in North Carolina? What do you think you're doing as a woman? I mean, and, and we like to tell that story because those very same people now call us up two or three times a year. Can I bring a tour group? I would like to do a workshop at your place. Will you come be on our panel? Because, of course, that's all just completely changed in the 15 years since we've been doing it because uh, people have begun to say, we've got to save our farms. The traditional way of doing it isn't working for many people. They don't want to have to get that huge. They can't do it. It's bad for a lot of things. How can a small farm make it? And of course, they've realized niche marketing, value added, uh, all these things are, are one way to do it. There are many ways, but that's one way. So we went from being la the laughing stock of all of the infrastructure to being the poster child for the new American farm. Goat Lady Dairy is more than just a farmstead cheese operation. They have an education space that also serves as a restaurant for farmhouse dinners where all the vegetables and meat as well as the cheese come from the farm. It's part of a larger effort by the Tates to raise the consciousness of consumers about farming and where food comes from and the traditions that are dangerously slipping away. I started talking to groups about farm issues oh, 25 years ago when I was involved in, in the upper Midwest. And I used to always ask people in my groups, you know, how many of you did your parents ever live on a farm? How many, how many of you ever lived on a farm? You know, just to kind of show people. And back then, you would, you would always have a few people in the room who had lived at the farm sometime. And you'd have quite a few people, maybe 40%, whose parents lived on the farm. Today, you're lucky to have any hands raised to either one of those questions. So in just a couple decades, people having a real connection with a real farm is just gone. But we believe that there, there is something innate in humans and in our culture that you really want to have that link and you really feel a loss when you don't have that link, particularly if you begin to study about food and real food and industrial food and all of those issues, then you go, well, gee, you know, 
I'm not so sure about this stuff, and I would like to know somebody who's doing it a different way. So it became real clear right away that, that if we could somehow harness the power of that hunger, you know, get a hold of that energy and move with it and make it and give people a meaningful experience with a farm that produces some of their food and figure out how they could join us in that by giving us a little bit of their money so that we could stay in business and do this for them, that we would have perhaps a real winning combination. We try to move them from being food opportunists to being food loyalists to being food advocates. An opportunist is someone who every now and then says, oh, I know, let's go to the farmer's market. A loyalist is somebody who comes every Saturday to the farmer's market, gets whatever they can, and then goes to the grocery store. Okay, so that's a big move, but a critical move, because as I tell people, if a very small percentage, I would say 3%, you know, if 3% of the food dollars in the Piedmont Triad went to local farms, we would be blooming with small food farms all around. That's all it would take, and we're seeing it happen. Uh, and then the food advocate, of course, is somebody who would write letters and say, wait, a, what about land preservation? And, you know, they'd get involved in the issue. So that's, you know, that's how we see our work as food producers, cheesemakers, farmers, as being part of a larger social movement. But their efforts are intended to do more than galvanize consumers. For Steve, there is a greater, more meaningful arc for the work that they do. It is the fight for farming and farmers to try to keep it accessible for future generations. What is the challenge is we may be coming to this a little late because we've lost so many of our farms. At lunch today, you were talking to my mother and you said, wow, 59 years of farming, you all must have learned a lot. And I, the thought came to me, well, yeah, and they're, you know, they were on the shoulders of, I don't know how many generations of my family. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't even know at what point we weren't farmers. Our, we were always farmers. So they were on the shoulders of all those people before them. And you see, we're losing so many farmers. Or, or the way to say it is we've lost most of our farmers and their children or young people that they've mentored are not picking up for them. So we've lost most of what we know about real sustainable farming. We've lost. Plus, we've lost most of our farmland, or a lot of it, to... Uh, to development that isn't wise in terms of preserving the best farmland and, you know, making growth in a way that you have densities in some areas and not in others so you can save the best land. So that's two of the three biggest challenges. The, the wisdom of past generations that, that we've already lost and may, may lose even more if we don't figure out a transition from the old to the young. Farmland because you got to have that to do it. Uh, and how do you, how does a young person, if he doesn't have land in the family, how do they start farming when the land values have gone up so much and they can't, they can't figure out a way to have a farm business to earn enough money to service this huge debt to get the land? 
But then you've got to figure out how do we get these young people on the land. So that's, I don't know. I don't know whether, see, I really do think it's possible in some communities you will stir up all this interest from the consumers and then there'll come a time when they'll say, well, sorry, we used to have local food, but we don't anymore because nobody's doing it. It is hard to believe that in such a short time this could happen. But you see signs of it everywhere you go. Increased pressure on farmers to expand in order to offset lowering prices and rising costs. This leads to more mechanization and even homogenization of the profession. At the core of this is the issue of small versus large, of local versus global. And really, local farming is farming with a face. And when people return to that model, it allows them to make choices that have been taken or rather hidden from them. Food safety is a myth. It's all about who you trust. Okay. If you decided to trust the official, you know, and sort of mass media word about food and, the, and only the official word about food, then you would say f- eating at McDonald's every day is safe. And you would say eating beef that came from a Kansas feedlot that's mixed in with 3,000 other steers and has uh, antibiotic-resistant E. coli in it safe. So food safety is a myth. It's only about who you're going to trust and educating yourself about the realities of food. Unfortunately, in this country, the way we've decided to legislate handling food is we assume that the consumer is totally incapable of taking any responsibility for their food choices. That's why we pasteurize all milk and we pasteurize all cheeses except 60-day cheeses, is because we assume that the milk is dirty. So the only way to make the milk safe is to cook the poop. And then you can drink the poop because it's dead. The problem is, of course, you kill all the good bacteria as well as the bad bacteria, and then you have to add back in bacteria to make the cheese. But all you have to do is go to other cultures, we could name several in Europe, for instance, where they took the opposite approach. They said, okay, raw milk is a potentially dangerous food because it's the perfect medium for growing bacteria. That's why you make great cheese out of it. So you can grow good bacteria as well as bacteria that can make people sick. So let's figure out a way to regulate the handling and production of raw milk and raw milk cheeses. So let's inspect that. Let's inspect the farms. Let's decide how big you can be before it's not safe. Let's decide about shelf life, all these things. So that's what they do there. And they don't have any more people get sick there than we get sick here. And they don't get people, they don't have people that get sick from properly handled raw milk. On the other hand, improperly handled pasteurized milk products can be just as dangerous or more so. For instance, listeria, which is the thing that causes women to miscarry, which is something that some people are concerned about for these soft cheeses because they they can be carriers of listeria. Listeria is often contamination after pasteurization. 
because of mishandling of the cheese. But even with all the effort, the advocacy, the long hours running their operation, and time spent educating consumers about the complexity of the issues around farming, Steve Tate looks around his farm and sees that complexity manifest in beautiful ways, ways that energize him to soldier on. The best way I can capture one of the feelings I have is to use a metaphor of what it must be like to be a surfer. I'm not a surfer, but I can imagine what this is like. You know, a surfer, is dedicated to harnessing the energy of nature for this thrilling uh, ride where they get, they get in tune with this force that takes them to a place, okay? But they go out there and they, you know, they, they, they patiently try wave after wave after wave and, you know, they vary, I mean, I don't know what percentage, but the percentage of when they get the really thrilling ride is very low, right? But they're just out there in that energy of nature, just soaking it in and reading it and trying to figure out, okay, this is the one I'm going to join. I'm going to join this wave and we're going to go from here to there and it's going to be a thrilling ride and I'm going to be in this zone where nature and I are one and we are zooming along. Well. That's what it's like for me living on this farm. This farm where we have all of this partnership going on between plants and animals and the living soil and the seasons and the sun and the water going across the land. And, and you know, you work along and you tweak it and you, you, you try to partner in this way and you say, well, that's not quite right. So you tweak it another way and you move here and you move there. And every now and then it's all moving together. You know, and the cheese is good, and the goats are healthy, and the garden's beautiful, and the visitors are happy, and you just, you, you, you're on the crest of the wave. And it doesn't last very long, you know. You get a drought, or somebody gets sick, or, you know, and then you're like, okay, I've got to make an adjustment, you know, and you're, you're, you're not on the wave anymore. But you know, if you have this respect for this great force that you're, a part of. If you listen and observe and wait and watch and plan very carefully that you'll get another ride and the journey is well worth it. 